Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Nibor. Hello and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Nibor by the two film dudes. We're back. I'm Gustavs. And I'm Ali. And every three weeks or so, me and uh, sorry, every two weeks or so, me and Gustavs pick a movie to rip apart, tear, analyze. And we just have fun with it. And each movie, we come up with a bunch of different topics and questions we discuss uh, for about an hour or so. And then at the end of the podcast, we rate the movie on a scale from 1 to 35 in honor of the 35mm film stock. We are two students based in Nubo, Denmark, and we named the podcast in honor of Quentin Tarantino's latest movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Me and Gustavs are absolute film nerds, cinephiles, extreme, and we are so happy you can be here listening to us rant about movies for about an hour. Yeah, so we're glad to be back, and this week the movie we are doing is the one and only Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So the first and the only Stanley Kubrick comedy, uh, of course, made in 1964, starring Peter Sellers actually playing three roles because he's such a god. And uh, we're obviously going to talk about Peter Sellers, Sellers later as well. But I'm going to start it off asking Ali, as always, when did you first watch this awesome movie? Oh, to be honest, I can't really remember. It was pretty recently, actually. Like a lot of the things we've talked about before, I've seen like as a kid or like a five, six years ago. But this one, I think I first saw it maybe two or three years ago, actually. Uh, I saw it. I think I. it's basically the same. I think it's like maybe four or five. But yeah, also kind of recently, I was just uh, plowing through Kubrick. And obviously, I had to watch Dr. Strangelove. And immediate, immediately, it resonated with me, I think. It was just... It felt like it didn't feel like such an old timey, you know, classic movie that, uh, you know, film students are made to watch. And I don't know, film class were rather just a really sort of a really good quality, uh, joyful experience. And it's not it's not like a long movie. It's not a difficult movie. It's just it's just absurd. But it's it's a really fun experience. And I remember just the name Dr. Strangelove resonating with me at the time when I was just, you know, a few years younger. I remember even using it in some uh, video games as my username at the time, just because I liked I liked the name so much. It just felt really, really nice. And I, I still like it. I, I still feel like Dr. Strangelove is just a really, really legendary, you know, sort of name. It's like, damn, Doctor Strange. Love that. It feels weird. It feels good. It feels kind of powerful. I like it. I I also like the name Doctor Strange. Love because when I first heard it, because you know, I'm a comic book nerd, so I'm like, whoa, is this like a Doctor Strange parody? And then I saw 1964. Wonder what this is about. I watched it and I was blown away, confused, in tears, laughing. It was. This movie is a roller coaster that you can't take seriously, but at the same time, you really have to. No, you're completely right. I mean, it, right off the bat, if we if if we just get into it, this movie it it has it has you know this really weird dilemma of it being really really serious. You know, talking about uh, the end of the world and the end of the human of humanity, basically. But then again, at the uh, at the on the other hand, when talking about things that absurd. It's really hard to take them seriously. And, you know, when we look at war films, like normal war films, like, you know, I don't know, Saving Private Ryan or whatever it may be. You know, those are usually really high emotion movies that you take seriously. You never laugh in them. 
you you're sort of um, really petrified and scared for these young men losing their lives. But in this case, you know, you don't really see anybody directly losing their lives. You know, of course, people die in the movie, but you don't get emotionally attached to them. You're just sort of freaked out by the whole situation, just trying to understand and wrap your head around everything that's happening. And in the end of the day, it ends up being a comedy about humanity getting wiped out because, you know, why not? I would say a perfect analogy for this movie is imagine uh, your principal comes to tell you off, but he does it with his fly down. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't go as far to call it a perfect analogy, but, you know, it does it does do the job because because he never I don't know anybody that takes this movie really that seriously. You know, of course, uh, even though as far as I understand, some actual laws were changed because of this movie in order to like really, really make sure nothing like this can happen. But um, I mean, apart from that, I don't think any viewer ever goes on to say like, oh, no, this is just this is awful. How can we laugh at, you know, nuclear war It's just yeah, it's just a thing that's so absurd that it's really hard for a normal, normal, regular person to take seriously, even though it is a war situation. Yeah. I mean, the thing I like about this movie as well is that, like, there's a lot of layers to it. I mean, with every Kubrick film, you have layers on layers on layers on layers. For this one, you know, you can dig deep into, like, the political side of, like, the Russians and Americans like that. You can dig into the comedy side and just laugh at the ridiculousness. Or you could go into, like, the sort of sexual phallic themes of this and... There's just a lot to unpack in this movie, and I'm excited. I, I just want to expand on the sexual phallic themes, because I love that you touched upon that, because it's a Kubrick movie, and it's impossible not to touch upon that, because, again, it's a Kubrick movie. I mean, just watch Eyes Wide Shut if you're not, uh, you know, uh, convinced that Kubrick is uh, kind of kind of insane. But, um, I mean, the movie starts off with the B-52s, basically, to, I mean, I don't know if both of them are B-52s, but, you know, basically a plane being refueled, which is, I mean, very clearly an analogy for, you know, these two planes having sex. And um, it's just, it gives off, I guess, the right, the, the right vibe for the movie. And then uh, the whole, you know, Jack, the, you know, General's Jack Ripper's um, whole thing about bodily fluids and, you know, him making love and losing his essence I mean, the sexual theme in this movie is um, definitely among the really, really weirdly interesting ones. And I just, I have no clue where Kubrick's coming from, especially in this movie, uh, regarding the, the sexual theme. But it's there. It's definitely there. It's very vivid. And um, it's just impossible to miss. And yet it sort of fits into the whole picture perfectly, yeah. I guess. The thing is, like, the whole story revolves around, Je like, Jack Ripper, the, the general. He's just kind of going, uh, okay, so I've become impotent. Why is this? Old age? Russian conspiracy to Florida Americans' water supply. Hmm. <laughs> no, it's just really funny. He blames the, like, if you thought flat earthers were crazy, like, General Jack Ripper takes it to a whole new level. He starts... He actually ends the entire world because he has erectile dysfunction and can't fix it. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just um, Jack the Ripper, which is also interesting. His name, you know, it's Jack the Ripper. It's Jack D. Ripper. Um, that's really interesting. That's also, it, I mean, he does basically, I don't really know that well, you know, the, the real like legend about Jack the Ripper, but 
did, he, he did murder prostitutes, didn't he? Yeah, so I guess that's also sort of fits the theme, although I would love to speak to uh, either the writers or Kubrick himself about this, because I bet there's a really interesting sort of uh, thing going on there, you know, with him being Jack the Ripper and basically ma murdering the whole the whole planet. I mean, I think I can kind of speak on it a little bit. I'm not sure if this is what it was intended for, but essentially I think Jack the Ripper kind of killed the prostitutes out of sexual frustra sexual frustration, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah, and then you know, you know, the dropping of nuclear bombs on Russia is sort of like the general dropping his load, quote unquote. Ah, uh, that's that's a good one actually. Damn. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, that could that could be and the thing. Speaking of dropping the load, we gotta talk about that final scene with the general riding a nuclear bomb. I mean, that's just perfect. Honestly, that's just. <laughs> I love the whole Kong character as well. It just has this heavy Texas accent, and it's just, it's just he. It's really hard to take him seriously, but all of the like all of the all of his soldiers do, and the the whole the whole the whole B fifty two has a really interesting. Uh, has a really interesting chemistry going on inside there, but it's it's sort of it's also really serious actually. You know, none of the all of the soldiers are really serious about their commands. They um, they're really you know they seem really diligent and um, well yeah. It just it just it's really good. Like these guys are really working their ass off and like taking everything super seriously. Well, obviously, I mean. If uh, we touched on the sexuality theme before, well, then here comes the, I feel like, the biggest theme of the movie, which is just straight up irony and uh, how ironic it is um, that, you know, these guys are sort of the ones dropping the actual bomb and they're taking this really seriously, while politicians, the ones that actually can stop this, kind of, uh, are just, you know, sort of just hysterical and stressing their asses off and really not doing anything important, just sitting in a big war room discussing complete, utter bullshit and um, them talking about peace. And, you know, everywhere around the also the war base um, that uh, Jack Ripper is elite commanding is like peace is the mission or something. These signs, it's so also ironic. You know, it's all about peace while they're talking about a nuclear war. Yeah. He says peace and then pulls out a Browning M29 and just guns everyone down for no reason. Exactly. I mean, irony is everywhere in this movie, I feel like. I, I, I do agree with you with like the B-52. Like, it's a hard job, especially back then when technology wasn't as good and they had to like do all the math and think about it and calculate and make sure everything was running smoothly. And, you know, it was it looked like a hard job. And, you know, it, it like a lot of things that happen on the B-52, you can't really take seriously. It's like this guy's eating a sandwich and like, Captain, we have plans to nuke Russia. <laughs> and then you know there's that oh one of my favorite scenes in the b52 is when they're opening their provision supply kit you know like one prophylactic one small <laughs> holy russian bible and phrase book and that scene made me laugh so hard when i saw the bible book oh that's good so good it was yeah. amazing and i agree with you that thick texan accent just makes everything so much better no, it really does. It really does. And yeah, as you said, in the end, him writing the bomb. I mean, that's just so absurd. At that point, you don't understand what the hell is going on anymore. And then, you know, the movie just ends with, of course, Apocalypse. Because that's, I mean, let's be honest. It was destined to happen there in that situation, yeah. I feel like. 
No, but I mean an absolutely legendary ending to the movie. I mean, you it's sort of it's a really a roller coaster. You I mean at the start of the movie everything looks doomed and then it finally for one just brief moment it actually looks like oh damn, you know this uh, uh, little uh, I guess British uh, captain Mandark just saves the world with a uh, just a few pennies from a coke machine. But I mean, of course he doesn't because that would be too simple, yeah. right? And oh god, that, that Captain Mandrake, whatever he was on scene, it was just it was a really funny scene because he always spoke with like such seriousness with a ridiculous situation. And then, you know, he has like that like posh English accent, like, you know, I'm in Her Majesty's Royal Air Force, and then the Jack Jack Ripper is just like, quickly, feed me the belt. No, you're right. I mean Peter Sellers, ah, uh, he's just He's he is the heart of this movie. I, this isn't to me. I mean, it's a Kubrick movie, but to me, the real heart of the movie is Peter Sellers. He's playing, you know, Mandar Mandrake and uh, the and the president and Doctor Strangelove, all three of them. I mean, he's he's just. I mean, he's just such a talented actor. He was doing sort of the same thing in Kubrick's Lolita, where he. I mean, he was playing one guy, but the one guy was playing other guys, and then. Peter Sellers was an absolute legend. Him, I mean, obviously his most, like, I feel like his legendary roles in Pink Panther and Blake Edwards' Pink Panther as Inspector Clouseau. Um, he's just such a talented actor. So amazing how he does it, his accents, his impersonations, and of course his role. You know, okay, the president was kind of, you know, more down to earth, but both Mandrake, as you said, yeah, this really absurd posh english um captain and then of course dr strangelove even though just being on scene for just a few minutes i mean he completely steals the show and uh, you know what is i mean he did get paid one million dollars uh which was uh it says here 55 percent of the film's budget and uh that's insane but i guess sort of fits uh, fits the situation i mean he he basically yeah it was his movie. It essentially is. Whenever he's on screen, it's just, it's the focal point. Like, okay, I'm going to touch on focal points in a second, but I just want to say this. Anytime he's on screen, it's just, you want to focus on him, what his character is doing, what he's saying, what, how he's reacting to, how he's talking to other characters. It is his movie. It's, this isn't a, a movie about nuclear discussion. This is just Peter Sellers in a nuclear holocaust. And I want to go back to focal points because one of the things I noticed while rewatching this movie is that, and I actually looked it up, almost like all the scenes in this movie are shot with a 14.5 millimeter lens. Because it's just so ultra wide all the time. And, you know, and then, you know, you have like all the scene in the war room and everything. And, you know, you don't really know where to focus. You know, like one of the scenes I remember thinking about this was when the Russian ambassador came into the war room and then you have General Turgidson and the president and then they all start talking over each other and then arguing and you don't really know what to do because, you know, there's not one person in center frame. There's no close up. It's just a wide angle and everyone's talking over each other. You don't know where or where, what who to focus on. And then you don't, and then the president turns around and starts walking to the phone, and then all of a sudden they just start fighting. And it's just, you don't even see them fighting. You just hear them like in an altercation. And then you get this wide shot of them like fighting back with each other, of like the ambassador on top of Turgachin just like fighting. And it was just, I, I don't know, I just really find it quite interesting that there was like no focal point whatsoever, as opposed to like a normal comedy where it's like most close ups or like center frame shots of each of the, you know, focus of the whole thing 
I thought that was a really interesting take and actually really helped the movie quite a bit. No, I mean it is it is it is shot in an interesting manner. I mean it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple from that point of view. It uh, I, I mean yeah, most of them are wide shots. Most of them are pretty simple shots. I mean the movie clearly focuses not on the visuals but on on the just on first of all the actors like Peter Sellers, which most of the budget was spent on, uh, very valuably, very valuably so, and um, and yeah, the the jokes or you know the script. And it worked. I mean, it's nobody cares about how shitty the planes look, you know, how shitty the little plane models look on the backgrounds or, you know, nobody cares. It's just because the movie is a classic because of just how good the, the performances are and how good the script is. You know, you can't you can, of course, you can nail every aspect, but they save the budget for Peter Sellers here. And just other actor, other really good actors like George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden, and it worked for them, and it clearly worked out for the better. I feel like uh, when you have you, when you don't have a huge budget, you make sacrifices, and they made the right ones. I I hundred percent agree with that statement. It's uh, it is it is. You really have to like prioritize budgets in movies, and you know when I I really like like when movies don't spend a ton on like visual effects or like making cinematography great, because then you get like creative. You know, they start getting creative with like their shots and their kit, like actors and all the other things. And I, I think I thought it was pretty funny, and it was good. No. I mean, you, of course, of course, that's the thing. You're re you're really right. I mean, they do get you get more creative the more limited you are, and clearly, clearly, they work pretty limited. I mean, it's and the whole the whole idea of the movie is pretty complicated. I mean, you have to build a B fifty two, you know, inside, and you have to you have to build a war room and everything. You have to make all that all that all those things, and it 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 does actually like call for a lot. I mean, then there's those shooting scenes and war scenes and whatnot. So. They clearly spent the budget wisely, and they didn't create anything that sort of looks bad or anything. It's just, I mean, okay, the plane shots, yeah, from the outside, of course, you can, like, nitpick. But it's not something that bothers the experience. You just soak it in, you accept it, and you're like, okay, let's just get on with it. Let's just get on with a really, really good movie. Because, yeah, that's the thing, you know, when something's some other part is really good, you know, that you sort of close an eye um for for the shitty part and yeah as i said uh a few times already i mean it worked out for them in the end actually you know nominated for four oscars a movie like this of course that would never happen these days and of course but you know nominated for even best picture and uh, of course peter sellers getting the nomination for best actor absolutely i mean he should deserve it for any any of the three roles and, you know, he almost actually ended up playing both uh, also um, Turgeson, but, you know, he said that that was too physically demanding. And he also uh, was kind of, I guess, offered to play uh, Major King and um, or Major Kong. And uh, but uh, I guess he, as I read, he ended up breaking a leg oh. on the bomb oh. or something. Just, you know, because that happens when you sit on a nuclear bomb sometimes. <laughs> and I mean... Yeah, but it's interesting. They still got really great actors. I mean, George C. Scott, he's just so absurd. It's like he's 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 I feel like he's even he feels even more insane in some way than uh, Jack Ripper. He feels he feels completely mad. It, he, it feels like I mean, he's making a few like solid logical points, but it's just it's just he he, he has this sort of weird look to in, in his eye that just makes you 
makes you unable to comprehend what he's saying. I have to agree with you. He's like, communist, atheist, <laughs> threat to national security. And then, oh, this the, 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 when you said mad, the first thing I thought about was immediately, immediately that scene where he's like pointing towards the big board. Look at the big board. Look at it. And then he just like falls over and then rolls over. Look at it. <laughs> you know, such a perfect performance. Such a perfect performance. I mean, I feel, I, I'm pretty sure he said that after... After this movie, he would never uh, play for Kubrick again, understandably, obviously. I, I think I could respect any actor saying that. But, um, yeah, he did deliver an amazing performance. And, um, and of course, uh, I feel, I don't think this is a legendary story, but I heard it like a lot. I think I heard it before I even saw the movie that uh, George C. Scott was playing chess with Kubrick uh, on behind the, behind the scenes. And uh, Scott would just used to just sit there thinking of the next move for hours and when he would make the move Kubrick would just come by for a second do his move and walk away and Scott would sit again for like deciding his next move for like hours and Kubrick would beat him every time and that's I feel I think as far as I understand Scott only agreed because he would respected Kubrick not as a director but as a chess player which is I mean makes the whole uh legend of of Kubrick even more legendary I you think. know talking about Kubrick he was like when he got like the rights to like he before in 1961, if you know your Cold War history, there was a almost a crisis in Berlin where the Cold War almost turned hot, and as in like Russia and uh, uh, sorry, as in like East and West Berlin were in sort of a what do you call it in uh, in a like tension state, and when that happened, Kubrick got like so interested in the subject. He actually like before like right after the thing, he read about. 50 books on like thermonuclear war and then you know when he got the screen like you know he got like the the script the rights to like write the write the movie yeah the script and then you know as he was writing it he he decided like he he and i forget his name who's the other screenwriter uh terry southern i think it was terry southern that he got and then they both decided while writing it that they shouldn't, like, it was so, like, grim and, like, ironic that, like, they should just try and make this a comedy, you know? But then... And, I mean, they made the yeah, right choice. But here's the thing about Kubrick said about comedy, com com comedy that I think is actually pretty interesting. He said, the trick to making a good comedy is that you shouldn't try making it a comedy. I mean, I definitely see where he's coming from, though, because, you know, it's sometimes when you try to too, too hard to be funny, that's when you end up not being funny at all. And uh, it sort of has to come naturally. I mean, of course, you have to try to make it a comedy. You can't just make it a drama and think it'll be funny. But you, you can't just get too narrow minded on it being a comedy. It still has to have a story. It's still it can't just be jokes. It still has to, you know, develop in some way and have good characters, funny characters. And um, so I get where he's coming from. Obviously, it's a bit dramatized. But yeah, you should just not get too narrow minded on it being a comedy. It's still a movie. And I mean, if you if you think about it from the right perspective, the jokes will come naturally, you know, and that's I mean, there's no real jokes in the movie. It's just the absurd situations and irony that makes it funny. Uh, yeah, it's just like the absurd situations, the crazy, wacky scenarios. And then uh, one of the lines that actually made me laugh like out loud quite a bit is like when General uh, <laughs> Bat Guano 
when General Guano says, all right, but if you don't make a call to the president, you're going to have to deal with the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> oh, yeah, like that one, like, how, how, why are you talking about the Coca-Cola company when there's like a nuclear war about to start, you know? It, that's, the whole movie is just exactly that much absurd. It doesn't make any sense, and it's not supposed to, and that's, you know, that's what makes it perfect, honestly. As, yeah, it's just wacky, absurd, you don't understand what's going on, but it works somehow. It does work, and I mean... That's also, I feel like, the whole essence of Dr. Strangelove, the character, who's just... He doesn't make any particular sense in the story. He's just there. You don't understand why there's this German sort of Nazi-like crazy scientist doctor there. And he's just sort of hiling, basically, sitting there, you know, calling the president my favorite, while the president's just, like, laid back there, sitting while the general general Tigerson has his hand wrapped around his his arm wrapped around the president they're just both both sort of chilling there while there's this crazy nazi scientist in front of them hiling and talking about you know the doomsday machine or whatever yeah uh, yeah, yeah the character makes absolutely no sense and i think uh like one of the most interesting things about him is that like the title and the way it connects to the story in particular like the final scene when strange love starts talking about the vault and mine shafts and living there for a hundred years it's like when he starts discussing that right like at like a 10 to a 10 to 1 woman to woman to male ratio right all the men stop worrying stop thinking about nuclear bombs and just focus Exactly. They they stop worrying about stop worrying and learn to love the bomb. <laughs> because that means ba 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 ten women. Yep. It, it's just so simple. I mean, this is a movie about men, and uh, uh, it's well, there's I, there's only one woman, right? And uh, uh, it's it's a movie about men, and as you said in the start, it is a movie about sexuality, and it is about the absurdity of men. Like, take it as you want. You know, men do have their priorities often really messed up. And, uh, well, men are, <laughs> men are men, you know, <laughs> it's as, as stupid as it may sound. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, and I feel like it fits this movie because that explains the whole war room situation, at least. Well, obviously the men in the B-52 are serious men and they're actually just straight up doing their job. And, um, you know, while uh, Jack Ripper is just a guy who's gone completely insane, the guys in the war room, they're not insane, but they're just stupid. And they're just, they, they're, they're just stupid, out-of-priority men. And um, they're just, yeah, they feel like they're doing their jobs. They feel like they're really important, you know, they're really important personnel and making these important decisions, saving the world. Well, you know, that's how ironic, again, it is that actually it's just Mandrake who is saving the world in a little phone booth somewhere, like, far away. And um, that's, I feel like, I mean, there has been, the discussion and, like, the debate has always been there how awful it is that, you know, war is, like, young guys going out there shooting each other while it's, like, old men sitting in, like, a room deciding what they do and um, not actually risking their lives at all. And I don't mean to undermine any general there, but, I mean, it's, it is an interesting debate. And it is a debate to be had because war is the most absurd thing there is in humanity because it's straight up just like killing your peers makes no sense it doesn't make any sense i mean war is just absurd. like dr strangelove exactly and i feel like the movie has interesting you know 
it, I don't feel like it, it can call it a metaphor, but it's, it, I mean, it does create a, a, some sort of a debate, definitely. But I'm not even sure that was Kubrick's intention, you know. I, I don't think it was. I think, I think the movie is straight up just supposed to capture the absurdity of war. I 100% agree with you, you know. Uh, you know, it, it, I don't think it was meant to like start that debate or something like that. It could be, obviously, and like any generals that, of course, listen to our podcast. You know, we're not trying to undermine you here, but what what we mean is that like the the movie is like what Gustav what you said. Like it is about like ma- like the nature of man, what we think, what uh, what our um, body and mind are programmed to think of. You know, it's a sexual nature. It's not something we you know intend to most of the time but it's something that does happen and you know you see like all these men in a war room nuclear war is coming on but and then dr strangelove is like ah yes you can have sex with 10 women and then all the men just like just like listen and perk up their ears and want to listen about this they don't want to think about nuclear war and saving their own people they want to think about getting laid 10 times yeah then then they're gonna think of them as heroes as you know repopulating the earth and saving human race Basically, in this fallout situation, it's it is absurd, and um, the movie plays off of it. And um, well, you're kind of laughing at yourself when you're watching the movie, because uh, yeah, because I mean, humans are humans are horrible, and um, in the, um, especially in the twentieth century, you know, right now we're finally uh, these uh, you know last decades, you know, humans are finally sort of opening up and towards you know different values. But in the middle of the twentieth century, in the middle of the war, you know, after World War Two, values were completely different. Priorities were completely different, and it just was the way it was back then. And any man back then, if you would have told him he could have sex with ten women uh, as like his duty, you know, any man would take that because. <laughs> Because why not? And um, Kubrick knew that because Kubrick, I mean, the thing with me, um, the thing for me with Kubrick is that he understands the human nature and he he plugs it in the most insane situations. I mean, 2001 is about human nature. Clockwork Orange is about human nature more than anything, you know, violence. And all of these movies sort of are about a like a pretty specific part of human nature. And Doctor Strangelove just happens to be sexuality slash absurdity of it and the irony of it. You know, what Clockwork Orange is about, um, violence in 2001 is about, well, whatever it may be, um, sort of uh, being disconnected with the identity or computers, whatever. That's a completely different discussion. Um but in the end of the day, Kubrick understands human nature better than anybody. And he captures the essence of it in his movies so good. I mean, although I would, you know, call his uh, the, his movie about uh, human sexuality eyes wide shut, not Dr. Strangelove, sexuality does exist here. And uh, Kubrick knew that. Kubrick acknowledged that just as much as uh, Fincher did. As, uh, as uh, Fincher said that humans are perverts. And I think Kubrick would agree with him. And uh, Kubrick just embraced that. My opinion on movies and any type of art that it tries to express the human nature, none it, it is not accurate or it is not good if it doesn't explore the darkest, the most twisted, and the most absurd parts of our nature. Like, no one wants to hear, like, oh, I fell in love with someone. Great. How did you feel? Like a cliche love movie. Cool. That's everyone. You know? 
you, you want people don't talk about the things that like they actually think you know they you want to you hide those things because it's not like societal societally acceptable you know but with these movies and the that explore like the deepest darkest most perverted parts of our nature you know they really hit home and they really they really resonate with some of the like i would say most of the people that watch it and I think that's what makes this movie like so interesting to watch as well. You know, not just from like a cut, like, yeah, it's funny. It's satirical. It's great. It's a, it's a good, important topic about, you know, nuclear war, but like, you know, the, the human nature aspect to it, you can really connect with it and understand it a little bit. Like you like give that example of like, uh, you walk up to any man and say, do you want to have sex with 10 women? Like, like to be honest, Gustav, if you walked up to me and said that I would go right now. <laughs> <laughs> But no, you know, human nature doesn't change. We're all crazy, sick, twisted animals. And, you know, the sooner, like, you know, you understand and see that, you know, the more you start to accept it. And, yeah, that's that's what I really like about this movie, crazy nature. And that's what I like, honestly, about any Kubrick movie. And he just, he, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of sad. Gotta be honest, I'm just gonna get back to the Peter Sellers topic. I'm kind of sad Kubrick didn't get to, um, you know, use him for some of his later movies, you know, only... Lolita and uh, Doctor Strangelove when it was sort of more, more the earlier part of his career and um, uh, yeah I mean of course he got to use some other awesome great such talented actors in in his other movies but yeah I just I feel like Peter Sellers just captures what Kubrick's trying to achieve so well and you know in this movie Peter Sellers also he's a fan of doing many takes although he did, he didn't understand why so many you know why Kubrick wanted just him to do the same thing over and over again but Peter Sellers also liked doing you know many takes and I feel like Peter Sellers was very true to himself you know he was he was he was crying at one point during shooting and he just he was just so so done with it and that means that just shows his dedication and how much he's actually getting into these characters and using himself as a as a man, you know, as his body to do these things and his soul to just uh, share with us this uh, this story, that that sort of dedication that's not that's not a common thing in actors. And um, my hat off to Peter Sellers. I mean, such a such a such a great such a great guy. And yeah, I'm sad we didn't get to see him in more Kubrick movies because I feel like the two sort of fit yeah. together. The thing is, like with Peter Sellers, like Columbia Pictures only agreed to like like give uh, Kubrick like the thing if they had Peter Sellers in at least like three major roles you know I think it was either three or four major roles that was the conditions they set for him to like because Lolita did so well that like they wanted to continue that success over on to Dr. Strangelove but yeah I'm, I agree with you Peter Sellers he, he was the heart of the Kubrick films for a while yeah no no, no, it makes sense from, you know, touching on Lolita. I mean, that was also just coming off such a such a popular novel back then. That was just, I mean, I feel like it was deemed for success and Peter Sellers also. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense for Columbia to, uh, to want Peter Sellers in this movie. And I'm glad, I'm glad they made this request. God, I mean... I'm just I'm just really doubting that somebody could have played this part any better than Peter Sellers did. And still, I don't want to undermine, you know, Sterling Hayden, who went out of retirement for this movie. I mean, he hadn't done a movie for like five years and Kubrick just obviously persuaded him because that's what Kubrick did. And uh, Sterling Hayden also, he was just 
if like you believe you even like when you listen to the monologue about you know the water and bodily fluid thing you even start to slowly believe that he has a point <laughs> in the communist in the communist uh, conspiracy theory as absurd as it may be and um well yeah uh just just a ba- great bunch of actors also peter bull the the russian ambassador he he he's this sort of weird weird russian guy who's just there who's just right in the middle of it taking these pictures and being exposed for it you know it's like the general turgeson he exposes him and it feels like nobody cares that he was just straight up spying on them and in the end uh, you know he he launches the he launches the the doomsday machine or whatever or takes the picture i don't know but he's just there in the midst of it all and it's 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 again absurd like why is there a russian ambassador in the war room it feels like it feels like at some point, if he's like General Turgeson, uh, isn't is the only one who's actually not insane there because he's the only one actually like minding it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like it, it's so, like to be honest, like I'm not too sure about the like a, like this is nitpicking at this point. Like the accent of him, I didn't really see it as Russian, but maybe I'm just crazy. And also, yeah, it's like I, I it's kind of kind of goes back to this, like this whole sexual theme. I think because the war room is filled of like. Uh, like sort of like uh, quote unquote impotent men who can't decide on anything and you know or like they lay down and do what they're told and like you know they act we- they're like weak and they can't do anything much you know kind of goes back to like that theme of impotency I would say and you know you can see it again kind of with the general with the with the president when he's talking to Premier Kissoff when like the it kind of just sounds like a really like weird domestic phone call like between two lovers. Just like, oh, how do you think that makes me feel? Well, yes, of course I'm upset. No, I, no. That phone call was so <laughs> funny. Oh, my God. It feels like like there's actual nuclear situation going on. And they're like, no, I'm more sorry. And he speaks in this really, oh, he just speaks like, so a, like a housewife yeah, that's like so been good. like, uh, like the, the husband's like, I'm going to work late tonight. Exactly. Like you think, you think I'm not sorry? It's like. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's possible for me to be as sorry as you are. Okay, I under I understand. I'm sorry. I okay. It's like I was half expecting him to say, "Okay, love you, bye." <laughs> no, and touching on uh, on the Russian accent, I mean, um, before I mean, when when he's having the phone call, when he's speaking Russian, it's it's I don't know if he's like supposed to have an American accent because he's like ambassador in the U.S. But it, yeah, I mean, the language he's speaking is really poor. I mean, the pronunciation. I mean, I, probably not a lot of Russian people saw it back then, and I'm sure it was fine. I mean, the Americans are so easy to convince that uh, it's 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 good Russian. I mean, I th- the words he was saying were correct, but the accent was really off. Yeah, and the pronunciation was pretty horrible. Again, maybe it was just because he's the American ambassador. Well, he's the Russian ambassador in the U.S. and he's you know living in the U.S. But yeah, it was pretty awful. <laughs> so, but again, he he. Yeah, no, and he still uh, just plays this really weird Russian character that's in the middle of it all and uh, also makes the situation even more absurd with this little matchbox camera or whatever it may be. And uh, it just it just makes it just makes the war feel like you just understand how absurd it is. It, it's a joke. I mean, in the end of it all, it's people's lives and it's a joke and that's what makes it so awful. Because it's straight up a joke. It's just for these people, they don't care about, you know, they're, it's just numbers for them. It's like 1 million or 2 million. It's like, oh, we'll just, you know, I mean, it's fine if we take the 2 million. 
but those are those are a million people's lives and uh I mean, that's just, yeah. We see that kind of as well with, like, General Turgis and, like, all right, if we strike back, we can get 10 to 20 million tops with, like, only, like, a couple hundred million of civilian casualties, but we can take it. Yeah, exactly. It feels like, it feels like it's just numbers for them. It's, uh, uh, when you actually do get in, get more serious into the movie, it, it does feel like it's just numbers for them. And it's just, like, this, you know, game. It's a war room. Uh, don't fight in the war room. Like, that's just that 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 line made me chuckle a bit. I'm like, don't fight in the room called yeah, the war that's, room. I mean, that's the whole joke. I mean, don't fight in the war room. Uh, that's how absurd you can't even throw a punch in the war room because God, that would be awful, right? People dying because of the people sitting in the war room. But don't you know? Don't punch somebody in the war room. No, that would be against the rules. It's uh, this is the war room, gentlemen. We do everything but counteract war. Yeah. It does get pretty sad in the end. Oh, talking about the end that you mentioned it. I we gotta talk about that last Doctor Strange love. Mein Fear! I can walk. I mean that. Yeah, that was just you get. That's the climax of the movie, and uh, he can walk, and then you know it's, it's like you're you you're so confused at that point. Like why is he? Ta- why can he walk? What is even going on? And then the world just yeah. ends. I, you know, I I you know. I, I didn't mean for this podcast get so sexual, but I think that, that it, it also kind of relates back to the, the whole sexual theme. Because when Doctor... No, but I get it, because it, it is, is the climax. But, like, you yeah. know, when Doctor Strangelove starts talking about it, it's like a 10 to 1 ratio of, like, perfect breeding and that, like, that we see more Nazi coming up because he's, like, hiling uncontrollably, you know? And he's, like, trying to, to, like, hold his hand down and, like, he punches himself accidentally one time trying to stop himself, you know? It's just like that, like, it's and it's just like it's arousal for him, you know? Like it's, it is so no. much arousal. He walks. It is, you're right there. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It is very sexual, and it's Kubrick, so I'm not surprised. But you're right. No, I was thinking of the same thing. Yeah, he's getting aroused from all of it, from the violence or whatever it may be, and it is weird. It is really, really weird. So weird, but I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, and I think at this uh, really weird point in the podcast, I think it's time for us to rate the movie. And Ali, I'm gonna give you. Uh, the option to go first. Ooh, I really like this movie. You know, there's so much to like unpack with it, and you can talk about it for ages. And there's 700 like there's it strikes up several different like discussions and arguments you can have about it. You know, it's good. There's a couple things you can nitpick here and there, but otherwise, I really like this movie. So I think I'd have to give this movie a 32. Yeah, seems fair. I'm gonna give it a 31. Yeah, I, again, as you said, there's things you can nitpick. I mean, my main loss, obviously, going back at it, is, I mean, the visual sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. I'm glad they made it, you know, the way they, they made it. But, it, again, it is a sacrifice. I mean, you can always do uh, everything. I mean, not everything perfectly, but you can always try in every department of the movie. And visual always helps since it's a movie. You can always do visual comedy. And uh, plus, I mean, it is a comedy, you know, it's uh, it doesn't just go in that deep into the characters, you know, you don't get that attached to the characters. And that's what sort of lacked for me. But other other than that, it is a great movie. As you said, it has so many great things that we touched upon today in the podcast. And um, overall, comedy, comedy legend and uh, Kubrick's. Kubrick's one of one of the weirder Kubrick movies, but still, you know, up, just just a great movie in his arsenal that he will always be remembered for, and Peter Sellers will fortunately be always remembered for. Yeah, 
And I, me and Gustav, just want to thank everyone who listened to us. Just thanks for coming here, you know, listening to me and Gustav talking about this. And I hope you're ready for next next time's movie, because next time we are going to be reviewing Forrest Gump. A classic. I mean, movie. you can't avoid the you, you can't avoid the we classic. Can't. I mean, it had to be done sooner or later. I'm excited. There's a lot to unpack there. It's it is a classic, but you know, so many things that maybe you know been missed or not that talked about. It's it's just oh, such a great movie, such a classic. And we want to remember everyone: stay safe during COVID nineteen time, because otherwise you have to fly back to Latvia like Gustav. So, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Take care. Bye. Peace, everyone.